Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Guess what we're not talking about today? <laughs> the road less traveled. We, we are done with the road less traveled. <laughs> it's going to become the road less traveled again. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We have, have solved that problem. Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to be starting a intro to a series that I'm going to pick up in two weeks. So um, I will be here next week, but Greg is going to be speaking uh, to us. Um, and so the following week, we will start up this series that um, we're going to be kicking off. Um, today, it just made sense that we kind of do a introduction that we do more of a, a character study about the the person that that we're going to be studying in depth going forward. So, um, over the last few months, I, I've kind of had this this feeling or this call to a season of building up, a, a season of of growth, a season of, of expectation, but. In the back of my mind, there's kind of been this idea of, okay, yeah, we're, we're growing up, but we need to, we need to make sure that, that we're doing this in a way that, that is safe. We need to make sure that we're doing this in a way that, that doesn't leave us vulnerable, that doesn't leave us exposed to attack, that there needs to be uh, you know, thought put into this. And as I've been kind of considering this, there's been multiple... Um, times where this specific area of scripture has been kind of brought to me and or I've heard it other people talking about it and it's just like you know I, I think we're going to go with this and so um, this particular portion of scripture demonstrates um, both aspects of the season in terms of a, a call to building a, a call to action um, and it's even though it's, it's in the Old Testament, sometimes we look at the Old Testament as, well, that's, that's the history book. That's, that's, that's where all the cool stories are, right? We, we like looking at those. We like reading those. But sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, it's like, well, how does, how does that fit for me today? How is that relevant for me today? But as we, we look at the life of Nehemiah, we're going to see a really, really relevant example of a regular guy who accomplished great things, not because of who he was, but because of what God was able to do through him. Nehemiah is about restoration. And for those of you that have been around for a while, you know that's, that's a buzzword for me. I, I, I love the, the topic of restoration, of being restored and being able to, to look at that and, and see how that has been applied to my life, how that's applied to uh, the body of Christ, how that's applied to us today. And so through Nehemiah, as we look at the, the book, we see that the people of Israel are restored, their, their hope and their homes are restored. We see uh, they're restored to the Lord, their society is restored. And as you, you just take those topics for a minute and you, you stop and say, okay, well, how does this apply to me today? Do we need restoration in any of those areas in our life? Yeah, we, we could use with that a little bit. And these days, we have those needs. 
Now, granted, we're probably not coming back to the burnt-out husk of Jerusalem saying, well, what do we do now? Or are we? How many times, maybe you guys are are looking at specific aspects of your life and you're like, yeah, it's kind of close to that. We need restoration of hope. We need restoration in our homes. We need restoration in our relationships with one another. We need restoration in our relationships with God. And my goodness, does the world outside of these four walls need to be restored to right relationship with God? So as we study Nehemiah, there's, there's two specific aspects, two traits, two focuses that, that I want us to pay attention to. Um, not just today, but as we go through this entire study, his character and his actions. And, and they matter, because otherwise, how are we supposed to, to take anything from what, what we learn in the Word of God if, if we don't look at his character and we don't look at his actions? Those are the things that, that inform who we are, right? The, the character is who we are, and the actions are, are informed by the character. And so before we, we go too far into this process, first we need to, to look back. We need to, to, to take a little bit of a history lesson. We need to look at why is there a need for restoration at all in the, the biblical context, right? In the 605 BC biblical context, why is there a need for restoration? So in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar he conquers Jerusalem. And because the king of Judah and almost all of the other people of Judah were not worshiping God, but they had turned away to, to false gods They were worshiping idols. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to defeat Jerusalem and to take the people captive, including Daniel. This is where we see Daniel go in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar still allowed a Jewish king to rule in Jerusalem as long as he was subject to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so that, that was the, the history that happened in 605. Move forward to 597. Jehoiachin, there's a, a lot of really great king names that we're going to hear this morning, um, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So he was one of the kings of Jerusalem, right? He was a king in Jerusalem. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Jerusalem and says, well, that didn't work out so well. So he puts down this rebellion, he lays siege to the city and carries off the the treasures that existed within the temple. And he took more people out of Jerusalem captive, leaving behind only the poorest of the poor. So just a a shell of, of what the city used to be, and then he makes Zedekiah king. Move forward to 586 B.C., we have the final Jewish king, Zedekiah. He revolts against Nebuchadnezzar. They're not learning. And decides that he's not going to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back again, lays siege to this city for an entire year. And this is where we see Ezra recording the, this particular part of history. And Second Chronicles 36 and Second Kings 24 and 25, that's where kind of all of the story comes together. 
But God allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in to essentially completely destroy Jerusalem. The walls are torn down and broken. The gates are burned. The temple is destroyed. Everything of value has been taken. Only a, a small, small handful of people remain. Psalm 137 is written by some of those that are carried off into exile. And listen to what they say. Listen to the, the heart of the people. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Everything was destroyed. They had likely lost family. They were separated from other survivors as they were carried off into captivity. The people were hopeless. The people were distressed. They couldn't sing. They longed for the home that they had lost. And in the midst of it all, they're crying out saying, God, where did you go? Have you ever felt hopeless like that? Has there ever been a moment in your life, or maybe you're in the midst of it now, where, where you are, are in the midst of such turmoil that you just look and say, God, where have you been? This went on for decades. They, they were resettled into, new, into a new location and they, they had to make new lives for themselves. They had to, to get new jobs. They had to learn different languages. They had to, to in, in, integrate into the society and the culture that they got placed into. And then after many years, if we look at 2 Chronicles 36, it says, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. So just imagine for a minute. For decades, you have, have cried out to God saying, Remember what we used to have. I, we want to go back to what we used to have. We, we want to go back to the greatness that, that once was. And, and there's no real indication that that's ever going to happen. And then this new king comes, and as directed by God, sins makes it available for people to go and to begin rebuilding. So in 538 BC, Cyrus commands the rebuilding of the temple. And so there's this glimmer of hope that, my goodness, maybe, maybe it will actually get better. We get to go home. If we look back a few months ago when we were studying the life of Daniel, 
we found that he, he lived during this time period and throughout the, the rest of the Babylonian Empire and on into the Persian Empire. And we, we learned how the Lord allowed Cyrus, the Persian king, to conquer the Babylonians. Why, why did that come about? Why, why does God orchestrate the rise and fall of nations? For His purposes. God uses the, the moves that, that take place on the national scale to accomplish His works for His glory. And Cyrus was the ruler that was chosen by God to advance God's plan to restore Jerusalem. This wasn't Cyrus's plan to restore Jerusalem. Isaiah, the prophet to Israel, prophesied about Cyrus 150 years before he ever came to Babylon. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. In 45, 13, it says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all of his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. What we see here and what we see as we look at all of history is that God's plans are never thwarted. And, and sometimes it's, it's almost easier for us to look at it at the national scale and say, God's plans are, are never thwarted for the people of Israel. God's plans are never thwarted for you. The, the same care that he has for the nation of Israel is the same level of care that he has for you. God's plans are not thwarted by you. You do not get in the way. Other people do not get in the way of God's plans for you. All along, God had a plan to bring his people back to himself. The people of God rebelled against God. And so he allows them to, to be conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar, but was that the end? That was never the end. He allowed them to suffer, to, to experience the consequences of their choices so that they would repent and return to him. And then when the time was right, when the season was correct, that was when King Cyrus came to power and the people were returned. In 538 BC, the first group of exiles returns to Jerusalem in the surrounding area under the leadership of the new uh, leader, Zerubbabel. This was the, the first group to return because there was a large group that hadn't returned. Let's stop for a minute and think about that. So this group of people finally get to return, but what are they returning to? This is a, a good lesson in expectation versus reality. Have you guys ever had that instance where maybe you, you like went to some place as a kid and then you go there as an adult and you're like, really? This was what all the excitement was about? Like, this is just a gas station. Like, <laughs> like, I built this thing up like it was Disneyland, and it's a gas station in the like, middle of nowhere. Like, those types of things happen. 
And so in that type of situation, that's just our own experience and our own expectation. This is reality. What, what they remember is a flourishing city, a temple, a, a city that is built, their homes that they have lifetimes of memories with, and they're returning to nothing. There are no homes. There is no city. There is no family. There is no temple. It is a barren wasteland of destruction. It would be months to travel back to where they needed to get to. And then what will they do? If you think about it, I mean, some of the, the younger people that would have gone, they didn't even know what they were coming back to. And they get through like, we've been had. This was what all the songs were about. This is what we're, we were all so excited to come back to was this. Man, I miss my, my nice little apartment building where I had like fruit and all my food and everything exactly the way I liked it. I got a camp in the middle of a broken down place. Even though that generation had grown up in a foreign land, you can bet they saw Jerusalem as the foreign land. For the people that came back that knew what it was, that it, what it used to be, what the land used to be, what the city used to be, what the temple used to be. What does that do? What does that do to the, the people's hearts? They're broken. There has to be weeping. There has to be mourning. There has to be a season of, of acknowledging that loss. And then there has to be a choice. And this is a pivotal moment, and it's something that's important for us to consider today because this is going to be something we talk about later on. There is a choice that happens. Do we stay and rebuild, or do we go back to what's comfortable? It's a choice that every single person that made that journey had to make because they had a choice. They could go back. They absolutely could have returned. Or... They stay and participate in what it is that God's called them to do. So Ezra records all of this history. And if you want to go back and read Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are very closely related. So I, I strongly recommend it. They returned to the city that was destroyed. They return and there's no temple. And after they return and they get settled, they start working on the temple. What, is that, what does that even mean? Like, how do you... How do you show up and then, okay, we need to build a temple? Like, it's not just like throwing some two-by-fours together. They actually had to like cut stone. They had to, to put all of these different processes in place. And so they lay foundations. However, as soon as they start to lay foundations, there's opposition from surrounding people groups. And so the work immediately stops. In 520 BC, under the direction of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they, they start to, to kick off the construction again, saying, okay, we, we need to get this done. And yet again, opposition comes. And so they send a letter to King Darius, who's the king now. 
who then looked for and found the direction that was given by King Cyrus, saying, hey, this temple needs to be rebuilt. And so King Darius says, Cyrus said it needed to be rebuilt, so we need to rebuild it. And so he orders that work continues. And the temple gets completed in 515 B.C. However, when they try to rebuild the city, the same opposition comes. Why do they need to rebuild the city? What, what's the point? Why do they need walls? Why do they need a gate? Because people are constantly attacking. If we, we look at, at what was going on in that time, there's these roving bands of marauders. There's these, these uh, different groups that are coming in and just taking everything that they have because there are no walls, there's no gate. In that time, in that culture, in that area of the world, there was that level of protection that was needed. And so in Ezra 4, 17 through 22, it says, The king sent this reply to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? So now we have a king who's saying stop. The current king, Artaxerxes, commands that the city not be rebuilt. So the temple is restored, but there's no city, there's no walls. They have a temple but they're under the thumb of the people that are around them. They couldn't defend themselves. They were open to bandits. They were open to thieves. There was nowhere for them to be safe. And not only that, they're living in the midst of all of this ruin. Just stop and think about what that would be like for just a minute. You know, we we talk about, okay, they're there and they have to rebuild. What's it like to, to just live and exist in a place that's broken down all the time? In a place that's completely ruined all the time, broken down houses, broken down walls, charred remains of homes and burnt gates. I mean, just psychologically, what does that do? <laughs> it is a constant reminder every moment that you are in a place that has been destroyed. I mean, you can't even like walk down the road correctly because there's all this stone and stuff in the middle of the street, right? It would have been depressing. I mean, it's depressing if there's just like laundry sitting out on your floor. <laughs> My wife was like a crazy person cleaning our house last night. She did amazing. <laughs> So the laundry on the floor is not a reflection of my wife's uh, keeping of our house or our keeping of our house. (laughs) However, those are the things that stick out. It's like, oh, there's dishes out. Oh, the kids' toys are sitting out or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Take that and say, oh, our entire house is destroyed. Like literally, it's fine. We'll just go about our day. So Ezra returns with yet more people in 458 B.C. 
under the authority of Artaxerxes to teach people what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to, to follow the Lord. To them, they didn't know Jesus yet. Um, <laughs> to, and to intercede on behalf of the people. And finally, we come to 444 B.C. and Nehemiah. That was a long intro. And we come to the need for restoration. So if we look back at all of that, we now see there's this need, this desperate need and longing for what once was to be restored. This longing that exists in the heart of the people, they need restoration of hope. They need restoration of their homes, their city, their security needs to be restored. Their temple, although the temple has been rebuilt, their relationship with God needs to be restored. And Ezra was trying, but if you read the book of Ezra, it's filled with how people just aren't getting it. <laughs> that, that these things are being shared and they're still choosing not to follow the Lord. So now, seeing the need of the people for restoration, let's look at, at Nehemiah. Who was this man that is going to be used by the Lord? First of all, one of the most important things for us to, to look at it in terms of the, the history and the, the lineage of Nehemiah is his dad, Hakaliah. Can anybody tell me what he is famous for? The only thing that we know about him is that he's the dad of Nehemiah. <laughs> the only thing. You won't find anything. I mean, you can look through all of the different you know, reference material. I did not see a single thing that made this guy relevant except for the fact that he was the dad of Nehemiah. And what does that mean about Nehemiah? He's just a regular dude. He is just a common guy. He wasn't from royalty. He wasn't trained or specifically educated. He wasn't from some important family. He was just Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 1, verse 2, it says, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't just concerned about his family. He was concerned about the people that were there. In Nehemiah 1.3, it says, They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. In verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Remember, we want to be paying special attention to Nehemiah's character and his actions. So what are the actions of Nehemiah? If we just look at the first three chapters of the book, or three verses of the book, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. If we look at his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, he is exalting God, he's lifting God up. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. 
day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. There's confession. Nehemiah 1.8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's calling out God's promise. Does God need to be reminded of his promise? He's saying, hey, this is real. You said it, and I know that you will be faithful. Verse, chapter, excuse me, verse 10 says, that there are, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cut bare to the king. That's how he ends it. So here we have this prayer that, that Nehemiah is bringing, saying, I'm about to do something kind of crazy. I'm about to, to go in front of the king. I'm going to bring a request that is kind of gutsy. But before we do that, we need to, to have a time of mourning, we need to have a time of fasting. We need to have a time of prayer. We need to get these things right before I show up. That way, when I show up to the king and the king says, well, what do you want me to do? It says, glad you asked. I have a plan. So often we find ourselves in those situations where, where we just show up because that's what seems like the right thing to do. And it's like, well, what do you want us to do about this? And it's like, I don't know. Whereas if we would just take the time to to prepare, take the time to pray, to fast, to, to seek what God is, is calling us to. You say, glad you asked. I've got the plan right here. And so this character of Nehemiah is that he has concern for others. He has concern for the city. He has concern for the people. He wants to see the people restored. He's humble. Do you think Nehemiah was necessarily involved in, in the entire nation of Israel falling away from God? Can we, can we pin that on him? Probably not. <laughs> and yet, in his prayer, even in, in that one verse that we just read, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive the, the sins of my life. Forget the sins of my, my fathers and my family. We ha have done wrong. What's the, the character of Nehemiah like? And, and how should that character inform my life? Sometimes it is so tempting to show up and say, I've got this. I can do this on my own. I don't think that Nehemiah necessarily had that problem in this particular case. I, I, I think... As the cupbearer to the king, I don't think he was necessarily feeling overly qualified about being called to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
sometimes we, we experience the, those times in our life where, where we feel like, yeah, I can do this. I've, I've got this handled. And that's a situation where we need to be careful and we need to come back and rely completely on God and, and who he is. But the same is true to the other extreme as well. There are those times where we will be called into the most uncomfortable situation you can imagine, something that you feel completely disqualified for, unqualified for. And yet God is still faithful in those situations as well. He is not going to call those he will not equip, right? So the question then becomes, what will I do when I receive that call? And that's going to be another question that we ask over the, the length of this series. What will I do? Will I mourn? Will I mourn for the, the people and the places and the things that God has called me to mourn for? Will I, will I fast? Will I pray? Will I confess? Will I claim the promises of God? What will I do? That, that's a, a question that, that is between you and God. It's not something that, that I'm going to answer for you, but it's something that we need to stop and, and take the time to consider. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to, to receive from your word, as we prepare to go on this journey through the life of Nehemiah, God, we ask that you would cause us to be mindful of those character traits, those actions that made him someone that could be used by you to accomplish your purposes for your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And God, help us to find those things, help us to, to look for those things in our own life and to, to live a life that, that encourages those things to come about. God, I want to be used by you. I, I want the, the pride and the goals and everything else that exists within me that, that is of my own making to be set aside for the sake of your glory. God, we want to see your kingdom come until the whole earth hears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 